0: Hi, I'm Matt Jansen, and you're listening
1: to the BRFCS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the BRFCS podcast. This episode is a three parter. We look back at the careers of Tim Sherwood and Two Guy thanks to our friends from These Football Times magazine. We have two articles from These Football Times, one narrated by our good friend in Canada, Bill Arthur, and one narrated by our good friend in Marple, Michael Taylor. In between those two items, we have a special guest, and we'll be talking about what he does for a living and how it might be of interest to all Rover supporters. Back in 2019, I was contacted by Jamie Bell of These Football Times and asked for some opinions on Tim Sherwood as he was writing a piece. And first up on this podcast is Bill Arthur reading the finished article. Jamie Bell looks back on the career of Tim Sherwood.
0: Tim Sherwood is by no means considered one of the icons of English football in the 1990s. Nowadays his playing career is often overshadowed by memories of sketchy managerial tenures at Tottenham Aston Villa and more recently his antagonistic attempts at punditry. However he retired in 2005 having long since achieved something which many other great captains such as Stephen Gerrard and Ledley King never managed, leading his side to a Premier League title. Truth be told during his first three full seasons at Blackburn when they finished fourth and second before laying claim to the ultimate prize in the summer of 1995. There weren't many better midfield enforcers in the land than Sherwood. Born in Borehamwood, Hertfordshire, Sherwood made his professional debut playing for his local side Watford in 1987, having come through their youth system. He was relegated from the old First Division of English Football in his debut season as part of the Hornets' senior squad. 32 appearances later and nearly two years on from his first outing the St Albans boy moved to Norwich for a fee in the region of £175,000. Once there Sherwood began to find his feet as a combative central midfielder playing regularly for a division one side at the age of just 21. However after making 27 and 37 appearances for Norwich in his first two seasons netting 10 goals in that time He fell out of favour during the 91-92 campaign and moved north to join Blackburn in February. Although he'd previously established himself as a player worthy of English football's highest tier, Sherwood transferred to a side who were battling for a playoff in Division 2. And in spite of the apparent step down he'd taken, the Englishman struggled to even justify his fairly modest price tag initially at Blackburn. He was also far from a permanent fixture in the team at this point. As BRFCS.com's Ian Herbert recently remarked when they asked him about Sherwood's early days with their Lancashire Club.
1: Had the team failed in the playoffs late that year, it's not inconceivable that Tim might not have survived long at the club. Such was the impact of his subpar performances. His contributions were fleeting, he seemed to need way too much time on the ball, lacking the physical presence to be an enforcer, or the guile to be a mercurial playmaker.
0: However, Sherwood finally came into his own once Blackburn gained promotion in 1992, arriving just in time for the birth of the Premier League era. The following season, his first full campaign as a Rovers player, Sherwood was no longer dispensable in the middle of the park, featuring 39 times as his side finished up fourth in the table, while also reaching the quarter-finals and semi-finals of the FA and League Cups respectively. Despite their status as relative top-tier newcomers, and even then having earned their place in the division by virtue of a playoff triumph begun from the lowest playoff position, Rovers continued to overachieve in the 1993-94 season. The departures of previous skipper Kevin Moran and veteran central midfielder Gordon Cowans before the start of the campaign, aided in clearing the path for Sherwood to gain the captain's orband and dominion over the heart of the team's midfield. Now unrecognisable from the player who had initially struggled upon his arrival at Ewood Park, Sherwood was a commanding figure at the heart of the team, leading by example as Blackburn pushed Manchester United all the way for the Premier League title, only to finish up second and settle for a place in next year's UEFA Cup. Such was the format for qualification to Europe's elite continental competitions back then. Typically it was the 1994-95 campaign when Blackburn won their first and only Premier League title to date that would prove Sherwood's finest playing in the blue and white. Once again I turned to Ian Herbert for help in recalling just how instrumental Tim Sherwood was in that title winning side.
1: Using his strength, eye for a pass and positional sense to good effect, he soon became renowned for his work rate and led energetically from the front. Sherwood was strong in the tackle vocal on the field a serial haranguer of referees and 1994 95 saw him also chip in with some vital goals his physicality meant that he could compete effectively in the air both defensively and in his opponent's penalty area he was strong in possession and at this point was using the ball simply but effectively his leadership style might be described as quiet enforcer not slow to chide underperforming colleagues but clearly respected judging by the impact that he could have.
0: The free-scoring partnership of Alan Shearer and Chris Sutton up front regularly grabbed headlines throughout the season and have often been accredited with delivering the Premier League title to Eid Park in the years since. But the togetherness and team spirit, which was also apparent under manager Kenny Dalglish in the mid-90s, was in no small part down to their robust skipper. And Sherwood's cruciality of the team was recognised as he was included in the 1994-95 PFA Team of the Year, alongside the aforementioned Shearer and defenders Colin Hendry and Graham Lesseau. Such was the midfielder's stature for a brief period of time in the 1990s, so the story goes, when Dalglish approached high-rolling owner Jack Walker with hopes of signing a young Zinedine Zidane. The club's owner replied, "'Why do you want to sign Zidane when we have Tim Sherwood?' Of course refusing to sign one of the greatest midfielders in footballing history, due to the presence of Sherwood at Blackburn, turned out to be an almost comical oversight on Walker's part. But it does go to show how highly regarded their captain was during his prime. This makes it all the more surprising that Sherwood was only capped three times by England, all of which bizarrely came once he had left Ewood Park and was undoubtedly past his best. He also never made the squad for a major international tournament. This was largely due to the presence of fellow central midfielder Paul Ince, who is not dissimilar in terms of his style of play and footballing strengths. Sherwood remained an integral part of the Blackburn side for a further three full seasons following their Premier League triumph, playing over 30 games in each and chipping in with a handful of goals in every campaign. However, the perceived mediocrity Rovers had become accustomed to in this time, finishing 7th, 13th and 6th in the league, and claiming no further silverware did not sit well with Sherwood who became frustrated and in his latter days at Ewood Park he was more of a disruptive influence in the dressing room than a model captain. By all accounts his roots in the south of the country meant it was always likely he'd be drawn away from Lancashire at some point later on in his career and in January 1999 this proved to be the case. Sherwood moved to Tottenham in a deal worth £3.8 million, midway through a season in which Blackburn would eventually end up being relegated to the First Division. Having moved to North London on the eve of his 30th birthday, he was already entering the twilight years of his career and struggled to have a real impact, or hold down a place in the side as he had done for several seasons at his previous club. Having said that, Sherwood produced the best goal-scoring campaign of his playing career in 1999-2000 netting nine times in 30 appearances in all competitions, as well as reaching the 2002 League Cup final, where Tottenham would be bested 2-1 by, of all teams, Blackburn. Sherwood's reputation as something of a dressing-room agitator was only enhanced by the nature of his exit from White Hart Lane, four years after joining Tottenham, and once again midway through the season, when he revealed details of a behind-the-scenes fracas with then-manager Glenn Hoddle to the media and moved to Portsmouth on a free transfer later that month. There was one more career highlight remaining for the Englishman once he switched to Pompey. At the not so tender age of 34, Sherwood helped them gain promotion to the Premier League as champions of the First Division. After one more season back in the highest tier of English football with Portsmouth, in which he racked up 13 appearances, he then transferred to Coventry for the final 12 months of his career before retiring in the summer of 2005. While his legacy at Blackburn, and within the wider context of English footballing folklore, will be forever found in his team's raising of the Premier League trophy at Anfield in 1995, Sherwood may have left a far more lasting imprint on the whole of English football with the role he undertook as part of that side. Through the 60s, 70s and 80s, it was more common for the captain, the leader, and the behavioural instigator of the team to be defender, often centre-backs and occasionally full-backs or even goalkeepers. Sherwood, however, set the tone for something which has become more prevalent since his prime years in the mid-90s and throughout the Premier League era by being an enforcer from the middle of the park. As a midfielder who could seemingly do just about everything and be everywhere, including in the ear of the referee, He paved the way for a handful of other great Premier League captains like Roy Keane, Steven Gerrard and Patrick Vieira who have all done the same for their sides. A traditional, no-nonsense character who is never afraid to ruffle a few feathers, the Sherwood we say on our TV screens from time to time nowadays almost perfectly mirrors the one who graced the Premier League in the 1990s. And while I doubt the comparisons to Zidane will ever be extended to his managerial exploits, It's worth remembering that Tim Sherwood was, at his peak, something we very rarely see in the Premier League today. A larger-than-life, blood-and-thunder character, unable to be usurped or replaced, even by the most dazzling of overseas superstars.
1: Our special guest on this episode of the BRFCS podcast is Matthew Hall, who's a Northampton-based rover supporter. He tells me that in in his previous life, he's worked as uh, an IT and software development engineer. Uh, He did that for 10 years before getting fed up with commuting and the rat race in general, and he's moved on to doing something else, and we'll come on to that shortly. But first of all, welcome, Matt. How are you this evening?
2: Hello. Um, I'm very well, thank you.
1: Excellent. It's great to have you on board. Uh, you're a Rover supporter, but you're based in Northampton. Let's explore that avenue first of all before we do the big reveal. Um, so so
2: it's—I know it's a bit weird, but then it—it it becomes less weird when you find out that Matt Smith, who was a doc, who was a Doctor Who at some point, is also a Blackburn fan. He is indeed, and is from Northamptonshire. So it becomes it becomes less and less weird. But yeah, it's uh, the—I mean, growing up. Uh, my parents didn't have a, a huge amount of money. And uh, it was a case of, used to a, the only sort of football I'd get to see would be if we went round to the pub or to a friend's house who had Sky, Yeah, uh, particularly in the early days of the Premier League. Um, and so I wanted to be a bit different to all of the Arsenal, Spurs, Liverpool. There was a few sort of tail ends of the early 90s. Um, and also uh, United fans just on sort of the crest of their their wave was about to splurge all over 90s football. Absolutely. And <laughs> and I wanted to be different. So me and my best mate got the sticker album out and just basically liked the kit and the badge, and that was pretty much it. Fantastic. So, so you're
1: yeah, you a, a, a mid-90s Rovers fan then? That's the genesis of your yeah, Rovers. Uh, I
2: guess I, I fall into... Pretty much my interest started in football uh, just as they came into the Premier League. So I, I kind of missed the promotion from the champion, well, Division One at that point, yes. but from... Uh, into the Premier League so I started really what like a proper interest in football sort of 92-93 which then sort of went on from so I, I guess you could probably class me as the glory sport supporting <laughs> uh, I can't fault
1: your timing that's absolutely for sure I think anybody who latched onto Rovers from sort of like May 1992 onwards timed it pretty yeah. well. <laughs> if, you saw that if your interest waned 10 years ago, then that's just about the, the golden years. So, your earliest Rovers memory, would that be Shearer scoring two goals at Crystal Palace, or is there anything before that? I,
2: I mentioned about the lack of sky thing uh, because. I, if, watching football for me was quite a difficulty. My dad used to work most weekends, so going to see live football wasn't really an option. So most of my early Rovers memories until probably sort of tail end of 94, uh, 93, 94, and then obviously leading into the, the championship winning season uh, was, was sort of lived through CFAX and Teletext. Oh, those or, are the days. <laughs> or, the, or the occasional radio parts. And we I moved, we moved in the summer of 97. Um, and so I... Ninety-seven. No, I was seven. No, I was seven. Not ninety-seven. Um, uh, Ninety-four, I think. And I, in the previous house we were living in, we were right on the next to a, a train line. Couldn't get five live, so went my. I was able to just listen and consume as much football as I want via radio. Right from the age of about seven. So that's pretty much uh, how I, I, I consumed football a, again. A, 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 aside from the occasional trip to the pub or friend's house that had Sky. When was your, when was your first trip to Ewood? First trip to Wewood was. It took me a while to get there because my dad's uh, work it working most Saturdays. He had to book the Saturday off, and I th- it would have been. I've still got the stub, uh, and it's. I can see it, but I can't get to- <laughs> 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 it. I could. So it would have been. Hang on, I'm going to get it in all in all its uh, sun stained glory. It was. Uh, it was. It was 98. I thought it was. It was February of 98 uh, when we played Leicester. Right. Uh, so it took it took quite a while to get there. Uh, My first live Blackburn game was against Coventry City, actually. And we got uh, away at Highfield Road and we got drubbed uh, 5 0. Uh, Peter Unlove got the hat trick and Lars Bohinen came off at half time. Additional tidbit to that is that I actually tweeted Lars about that sort of years ago, and I screenshotted it because he actually said, yes, it was true that he had to come off at halftime because he's colorblind Because <laughs> like, it snowed. You couldn't see the, the ball. orange ball on the grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So what's your happiest Rover's memory then? I guess it's blindingly obvious given the time that you started, or would you class your happiest Rover's memory as being from a time when you, you were actually physically in the ground?
2: There's quite a few. One was, uh, uh, so the 95, 96 season. So after uh, after winning the title, I went I went to see Forrest uh oh, I went to see them play Forest Away. It was the same season where we smashed them seven 0 at Ewood earlier in the season. Yeah. So it's kind of it don't this this sort of story dovetails between the two. My dad being a mechanic, he was he was repairing someone's car outside <laughs> and every time I'd see him walk, knock, knock on the window, walk past and just put a number of fingers up how many <laughs> goals he scored so being able to see, I think it was 5-1 five, five, at the the City ground in the end and then who, I mean Alan Fetis got absolutely battered that day and then we went to go and sign him a couple of seasons later which wasn't exactly the greatest but I remember singing cheerio uh, to the, the Forest fans at the City ground which I thought was, obviously I don't appreciate the irony of it back then but I do very much looking back on it now but that was probably one of my happiest
1: yeah I was at, I was at that game uh, I, I think uh, Rovers fans were singing thank you very much for Lars Bahin I do recall yeah that. I do remember as you that say, as well the, the, the goals are rattling left right and centre
2: it was my first like proper away day experience yeah. as like a winning team as opposed to just being very quiet and not saying a lot and getting yeah. very cold
1: well, it was definitely my fa- my most favourite away performance until Rovers did... Um, we managed to beat Sheffield Wednesday course 5-0 at Hillsborough, and as a resident of Sheffield, <laughs> then this, <laughs> this season, that was just about trumped it. It gave me a lot it's of... quite a few
2: drubbings of, of Wednesday in that sort of period of time. Yeah, the Roy Hodgson one, one as well. Anniversaries Ewood. of the 7-2. Yeah.
1: yeah, it was a good one as well. So, favourite Rovers players?
2: For me, it has to be 2Guy, to be honest. Yeah. So this is a... Uh, An
1: uncontroversial choice, if I may say. I, so.
2: I, yeah, I'm, there's no, there's not going to be any sort of diversity here, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was mesmerised by. So I, I actually went to university sort of in the northwest, so I got to see a lot more Blackburn when I once I'd sort of when I was a bit older. Yeah. And I remember being mesmerised by him in like warm-ups and particularly in pre-season. Yeah. And, and see, I think I saw I saw I saw the match where Matt Janssen actually got clattered by Carlos uh uh carlos Comeni, uh when we played Spaniel uh, in one of the preseason friendlies yeah but i was mesmerized by two guys just passing ability literally penalty area to corner penalty area to corner sort of 60 70 80 yard passes and then obviously all of the ridiculous sort of absolutely smashing volleys that he'd scored throughout sort of his tenure as well that it's it's kind of hard not to love him. I I obviously loved Shearer as well, but it's not that I had Shearer on the back of my shirt. Like my first uh, like outfield shirt, my first ever shirt was Tim Flowers, so Tim Tim's got a special place in my memory okay. there. Unfortunately, I wanted I wanted the ninety three ninety four shirt because it was that like early nineties like really jazzy, colorful pattern. Yeah. Um. But they'd sold out of those by the time it came around to my birthday, so I had to settle for the green one. Right. And right. and to uh to basically to. To make make things a bit better for me, Mum got flowers one on the back. So yeah, I'd say <laughs> Tim's probably up there as well. But yeah, I don't. In more recent memory, it's a bit a bit more difficult to pick. To be honest, I think uh, I guess a contemporary would be uh, Bradley Dack, really. Yeah. Um, and then obviously Brad Friedel has got a special place in the memory as well. So. There's, there's obviously def- definitive periods of, of where I had particular favourites. Yeah,
1: so what are, what are your hopes and expectations for the coming season then? What do, you, what do you think's in store for us? Now we've signed a goalkeeper and all that good stuff.
2: I mean, having a goalkeeper, imagine that. Luxury, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I'd be happy with uh, another year of consolidation, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I, I have no idea what, what sort of the expectation on Mowbray is at the moment. But I think a year, another year of consolidation. Uh, we, we do te- tend to do this quite frequently. We did it under Boyer as well, where we sort of came so close and it was the like last game of the season where if and we were getting close to turning over that goal deficit with Reading and, and, and then it all capitulated. Then it's sort of another middling season after it and then Boyer gets, gets binned off. So I don't really want to see the same sort of thing happen. I think Mowbray clean has an idea, um, but as long as, as long as we stay the same, maybe a little bit higher i would be happy with that considering we are still reasonably new back to the championship again
1: the interesting though that chat is that's not the hook that, that got you onto onto the podcast as our special <laughs> guest because whilst you did work in various it and software development roles that's not what you do now so would you like to tell the good ladies and gentlemen boys and girls of the brfcs podcast what your current job is please
2: so i'm currently a voiceover artist and a an audiobook narrator those two generally come together but it it, i do a bit of both um so (laughs) it's a bit of a i guess a niche career that i found myself into
1: it is yeah it crosses over with my day job as well because we've um, we've we've just actually engaged uh, a new voice talent for um for the organization i work for so voiceover artist i i don't suppose you've worked on any interesting projects that we might be interested in though have you
2: i've worked for next i've this is where i have to get my own list out because i forget every time <laughs> because- <laughs>
1: I, I did notice actually that Hello Fresh appears there, and, I, and yeah, I, Hello
2: Fresh, Hello Fresh Hello Fresher on that. That they were, that was. Uh, so if you've listened to any sort of football podcasts, any, any, any time yes. recently within last season, I'd have featured on some of those. Uh, depending on if you're, you know, if you're a fan of uh, football ramble or yes, any other Guardian football related podcasts or cooking podcast, any anything. To be honest, it got thrown on there with various different codes. I've done a bit of work for the. For the civil service, the the charity commission in particular, uh, Marriott Hotels, uh, Penguin Books, which was quite a nice one, um, SSE, the uh, Scottish Energy Company. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're probably some of the the select ones that, that I can remember. But there's
1: on one side. project in particular, which I think we should that, now that, talk about. That there is, yeah. So do you to, I, I didn't do you know want how to... far
2: you wanted me to go before <laughs> you sort of teased it. So teased
1: right, it. Well, we've, we've teased it enough. We, we've done the what's my line thing. So you've done a voice, well, not a voiceover, you've done some voice work. For a former Rover's player, so would you like to tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing? Yes,
2: I uh, recorded Matt Janssen's autobiography. Right. So you are you are the man. I am literally the man. So on, on, on that, I, I'm Matt is Matt for life. the
1: purposes of that. So how did um, how did you become aware of the gig? How did that first cross your path?
2: It's one of those if you don't ask, you don't get sort of situations. And uh, I, I do. I have my own podcast, uh, which is sort of linked to Football Manager. And uh, one of my co-hosts from that sort of he he, he always like at me in tweets so yeah when he sees someone sort of who's released a book or if you want an audiobook doing this so it's a bit tongue in cheek, it's a bit serious. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? I'd seen I'd seen it come out, I'd seen the pre-orders go live where I thought, you know what, I'm gonna ask because I haven't seen a pre-order for the audiobook. So I just and I noticed that Matt's DMs were open at the time. I don't know if they still are. But yeah, I just I just dm him and said this is gonna be a bit out of the blue. Um but if I've just noticed I've just seen that you're you're releasing your autobiography yeah if you haven't already considered it uh, would you like an audiobook version doing and fantastic he said, i'll um that's not the worst idea in the world. I'll pass your details on to i think it was originally his agent, and I don't know like if you've read the book yes. you will know that his yeah. agent for a while was was his father in law um and to be honest i can't. it was a very weird week that weekend and I can't it all merged into one at one point yeah and uh so initially his agent phoned me and basically said the publisher's going to call you tomorrow and that and that was it and then uh, I had a phone call with the publisher and we worked from there really fantastic um, so so yeah that was it, it pretty much off the back of a tongue in tongue in cheek comment on something else I thought sod it I'll go for it
1: well, as you say, if you don't ask, you don't get. And um, it's certainly worth it. Yeah, we, we, we pushed hard to get the podcast into it. It was his father-in-law that in the end sorted it out for us, which was which was terrific. And and you got that gig as well. So what was the process then? When did you start recording? And how long does it take in, in total to record a, a full book like that?
2: So the, the full book's just over 90,000 words. Right. Uh, and so it takes the i'd say roughly i probably i probably read about seven thousand words an hour um, which isn't the fastest but also it depends on on what it is really as, yeah, yeah if it's character work it'll take me a bit longer because you've got a break between voices yeah. and all of that sort of thing but uh i was i i was either side of uh, a trip into hospital as well because i managed to uh separate well, prolapse another disc in my back which was excellent timing okay. so uh so it took it took probably about three, four, five months maybe to finish. But then that's uh, I, it, I would say would say that something like that would take me a lot less time normally. Yeah, uh, it's just an unfortunate timed thing. And I thought this is this this couldn't have happened at the worst time because uh, <laughs> I'm trying to impress someone here, and I don't want to screw it up after having getting the gig myself yeah, yeah, yeah. basically. But yeah, so I think I think they finally hand the audio in. January or February, just before lockdown hit, and then I didn't hear anything for a while, and then all of a sudden it, it's it was sort of released in July, I think.
1: Yeah, well, I, I did a quick Google, naturally, before um, before we started. I not, I noticed um, people who people are interested in this sort of thing, there is a 30-day free trial on Audible, and you can get Matt Jansen, the autobiography narrated by Matthew Hall, Eight hours and twenty-one minutes of good listening time, and it gets uh, four and a half stars from the eight ratings. I don't know how many of those ratings you and your family are responsible for, <laughs> but uh, I, I presume it's the content of the book as much as anything else. I'm sure it's it's delivered beautifully. Uh, but there is a sample on there, and you can you can listen to Matt's uh, Matt's voice.
2: My my dad is uh, useless with technology, and. <laughs> it it, the amount of times i I think he's finally i've I've been doing this like professionally for around three years now yeah and he's finally understood what i mean by audiobook despite them not really being a new phenomenon or anything like that (laughs) they've existed for years i used to listen to to dick king smith on tape when i was a child so it's not a new phenomenon in fact he bought me those tapes so he knows that they were a thing but despite me telling him He's finally got changed his question to being "What'd you do again?" to uh, <laughs> "What have you done this week?" sort of thing. But Fantastic. It's, uh, taken a while for that to turn around, but yeah, that that the week before I got that uh, got this gig, uh, I'd also had phone calls from a, a talent agency in LA, uh, basically asking me if I could be uh, James Corden at short notice, <laughs> which is just the uh, the only reason I. I didn't hit. well, I, sorry, that, that was an, another similar sort of thing where they, they contacted me. Yeah. I said, fine, I'm available for a call. And it was like 10, 10 p.m. because obviously time difference is a factor there. And then they said, oh, have you got, are you, are you, uh, you signed to SAG? Or do you? And I was like, um, no, <laughs> I'm not signed to SAG because it costs three grand to join and I've never appeared in any SAG. Um, That's the Screen related... Artist
1: Guild. Yeah, is that right? It is. Is yeah. that their equivalent uh, of equity?
2: Yes. Yeah. And so, and you basically you have to have appeared in a SAG approved production to right. even have a chance of applying for it. Yeah. Didn't hear anything from them after that, strangely enough. They seemed really keen initially. <laughs> and so, so, that and the Matt Jansen thing all in one week was a, a little bit too much for my tiny brain to comprehend at that point.
1: So, did you go into uh, a studio or did you use your own facilities I, to record uh,
2: it? Everything I'd, I've, I've been, I've, I've recorded a few things in, in external studios, but obviously now it's it's yeah. ideal but i've i've always had uh had sort of my own studio it's had yeah. various like the my entire recording process has changed from when i first started to what i do now i've got it pretty much nailed down yeah to a fine art but it's uh i guess a self-made recording booth um which it it, it looks better than it used to be it used to be a wardrobe so
1: <laughs> with lots of duvets and egg boxes and things like that
2: <laughs> yeah it's 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 a lot less uh diy now yeah um but it it's, it does the job. I live in a red, relatively quiet area. We yeah. don't have a huge amount of noise. Uh, we do have a bit occasionally from builders over the road, but generally it's pretty quiet and Excellent. so it's certainly quieter enough to to record and no one else has ever no one has ever complained about the quality of the audio. So, so I
1: take it and you won't have met Matt. you'd just done this remotely, presumably.:
2: Yes, pretty much it, I did have to do a bit of fanboy gushing as yeah. well. <laughs> uh, because I thought, well, this may be the only chance I ever could ever speak to him. And he doesn't even follow me on Twitter now, which is a bit disappointing. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe we can get him to listen to this and uh, we can restore that connection possibly. When he contacted me, it was uh, it, I did think, gosh, that's really unusual. And the fact that I thought there was, hopefully, there was more to it than just a coincidence that a Rover supporter recorded um, Matt's audio book. Uh, and I'm delighted to see that your your persistence paid off. I think that that's absolutely amazing. So, any other interesting projects in the pipeline?
2: I, I don't have any more Rover's ones, bar the, the the maybe jingles that I might be recording for you. But. Well, that that'd be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, n- nothing nothing that uh, there, there, there's some things that are un- under NDA that I can't oh, of mention course. anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, nothing nothing.
1: But you're keeping busy. That's the main things. thing. Not with something yes,
2: lockdown. Yes, uh, the the. The advantage to, to have the, the situation for me at the moment anyway is that people are a lot quieter. There's a lot less people on the roads. Yeah. Um, and it means that I can pretty much record all day if I want to. Yeah. So whereas previously I would maybe have to do a night shift sometimes if there was a, a lot ah, of noise outside. Right, that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so with with a lot less people being around, it means that I've sort of... Good for I've productivity, to, yeah. Exactly, exactly yeah. I can, I can have a normal life occasionally now and not have to work at silly o'clock in the morning when it's silent which what used to be very much the way
1: and hopefully, at some point uh, when this COVID nonsense is uh, is less of an impact on our society, you can get yourself back up to Ewood. It be if we can do that. We must uh, we must meet up, and I'll buy you a drink as a, as a thank you for being a guest. So, uh, but thank you very much for being our special guest on this episode of of the podcast. It's Matthew Hall, ladies and gentlemen. He's available for all good voice talent work now. Um, <laughs> you, you can catch him on Twitter. Matt, it's been a pleasure chatting and thank you so much for for getting in touch with BRFCS.
2: No worries. Thank you very much for having me on.
1: Now the second of our pieces from These Football Times... This was written by matt gault and is narrated by michael taylor the cult of tugai
3: on the 24th of may 2009 ewood park home of blackburn rovers was awash with a color not normally associated with the lancashire club instead of the traditional blue and white the supporters had packed into the ground wearing the red and white of turkey in honor of tugai kerimoglu the cult hero who bid them farewell after eight great years with the club. Following the match against West Bromwich Albion, which saw the baggies bow out of the Premier League after a dismal campaign, Tugay emerged from the tunnel to thunderous acclaim. In all four corners of the stadium, signs and banners were unfurled thanking the Turkish Dynamo for his faithful service. Taking his daughter by the hand as he walked over Ewood's turf one last time, Tugay offered a wave of acknowledgement as Tugay you are my turkish delight bellowed down from the terraces continuing his lap of honour he cracked that trademark smile while fighting back tears even for a man who had established himself as one of english football's toughest midfielders tears were acceptable it was a very emotional day after all tugay over 270 appearances had given his heart and soul to Blackburn Rovers, and the supporters appreciated that. When looking back at his time in the Premier League, there's always a tinge of sadness that we perhaps did not see him in his exuberant youth. When Rovers signed him from Rangers in 2001, he was nearly 30, and while fans remain eternally grateful for the memories that Guy provided, it's a pity he wasn't 25 when he arrived on these shores, purely for the fact that that there would have been plenty more to enjoy. Blackman Rovers fans remain grateful to Graham Sooness for many things. He earned the club promotion back to the top flight after they were relegated in 1999 under Brian Kidd. He helped the development of talented youth prospects such as Damien Duff and David Dunn, And he led the club to a top six finish during the 2002-2003 season. However, perhaps his greatest legacy was having signed Tugay from Glasgow Rangers. The Scot had worked with the midfielder at Galatasaray and identified him as an ideal candidate to bolster the midfield in the summer of 2001. Now soonest didn't always get it right in the transfer market. Ali Deer at Southampton and Corrado Grabby at Blackburn Rovers spring to mind, but capturing Tugay for 1.3 million pounds proved to be a stroke of genius. Signing Tugai was still a leap of faith. He'd forged a remarkable career in his home country, winning six Turkish League titles with Galatasaray and four Cups, also becoming the club's youngest ever captain in the 1992-93 season, aged just 22. However, although he developed a knack for scoring in Turkey, Tugay struggled at Ibrox. Inconsistent form meant he was in and out of Dick Advocat's first team and, after growing disillusioned with a lack of football in Scotland, he received a call from Sonas just at the right time. Luckily for Rovers fans, Sonas had seen two-guy play, unlike Ali Deer when he threw the con-, art- con artist on for his Premier League debut at the Dell and then took him off soon afterwards. In fact, Souness had seen him play very well and decided his former captain could be a real asset for Rovers who were top-flight bound, having achieved promotion. Tuguy's parting shot to Rangers was to publicly reveal dressing-room discord. A squad tainted by infighting and ill-feeling prompted Tuguy to seek passengers new, but fortunately he was greeted with a much more gregarious atmosphere at Ewood Park. He made his first appearance as a late substitute in a 1-0 win over Sunderland at the Stadium of Light and it wasn't long before he cemented his status as a fan favourite. A month later, the Turk offered Blackburn Rovers fans the first glimpse of his extraordinary goal-scoring ability. Tugay was not a prolific marksman by any stretch. Rather, he had the extraordinary ability to conjure up goals worth remembering time and time again. His first entry into a beautiful portfolio of strikes came in a 7-1 thrashing of West Ham at Ewood. By the time Togoy received the ball on the edge of the area in the 80th minute Rovers had already pummeled West Ham. Glenn Roeder looked hopeless from his technical area as Shaka Hislop's back four grew horribly misshapen by Rovers' style and invention. Tougay had been central to the Hammers demise that afternoon sympathy did not feature in his mind as he floated a brilliantly judged effort into the top corner. Reacting to their Turkish talisman's maiden strike, Ewood erupted with noise. Tugay peeled away in celebration, cheekily sticking out his tongue as if to say, that's nothing, wait until you see what else I've got in store. In the weeks after, After he'd acted as the chief architect in West Ham's capitulation, Tugai began to feel like part of the Blackburn Rovers family. Once supporters began chanting his name, he felt settled, accepted, even adored, something that, through no fault of his own, he was missing from his time in Glasgow. At Galatasaray, he'd also been idolised as he built a decorated career in his home country. But the decision to sign for Rangers and embrace an entirely different culture was a brave one and it would have been understandable for him to seek a move back to Turkey after leaving Rangers. However Souness convinced him that he could play an integral role in the Premier League for Blackburn Rovers. As a deep lying midfielder with playmaking and goal scoring abilities Tugay offered the lot but his qualities were obscured at Rangers by their own rising star Barry Ferguson, who had been appointed captain of the club aged 22. As Tugay had also been tasked with such a responsibility at a tender age, he appreciated that Ferguson, a similar player, and himself, could not gel seamlessly in the same starting lineup. As Ferguson was a graduate of Rangers Academy, Tugay was sacrificed. However, his hunger to build a career beyond his home country remained undimmed and decided to accept Souness' offer, and it was probably the greatest decision of his career. So in that first season, Tugai became an honorary Lancastrian. He was almost ever-present in Rovers' midfield and helped the club reach the League Cup final. Unfortunately, he missed the showpiece final at the Millennium Stadium through suspension, but continued to express himself in the league and was only a bystander as Rovers lifted their first piece of silverware in years. But in the league, Rovers finished a very respectable 10th with a good flourish towards the end of the season. But it was in the second campaign that things got even better, with Souness guiding the club eventually to a 6th place finish, a position unlikely to be surpassed by any Rovers side in the immediate future. Two Guy and David Dunn acted as the spine of a team in a tremendously balanced side that had the odd sprinkle of flair and magic, Dotted throughout it. Brad Friedel was immense between the sticks, while Lucas Neal, Niels Eric Johansson, Martin Taylor, Henningberg, and Craig Short provided a sturdy defence. Tugai and Dunny were flanked at different times by Damian Duff and David Thompson, two wingers who added electric pace and cutting edge creativity to the ranks, while up front, Soonis had reunited Manchester United's treble winning strike partnership in the form of Dwight. York and Andy Cole and that midfield powerhouse was also backed up by Gary Flitcroft. For Rovers fans then it was the most exhilarating run that they'd witnessed since the club won the Premier League. While the side didn't quite possess the same title-winning credentials as the Shearer and Sutton era, it was still brimming with quality and character, typified by Tugai. He seemed to bring variety and freedom of spirit to Rovers that belied the stereotype that they were just one of the uglier sides. Newspaper men would quip that they were least likely to become a second cousin to the Maracana, but considering the artistry of two Guys striking of a ball, you would have been forgiven for thinking it was Brazil, not Blackburn at times. Through these years, Tuguy remained an essential quarterback type for Rovers, acting as a vital cog under Soonus and his successor, Mark Hughes. His technique and vision did not go unnoticed either. After United beat Rovers 1-0 at Ewood Park in November 2006, Sir Alex Ferguson was moved enough by two guys' performance to suggest that were he 10 years younger, he would have been an ideal player at Old Trafford, an illuminating indication of the esteem in which he was held amongst his peers. A week after Ferguson's fulsome praise, 2Guy lashed home an unstoppable 25-yard volley against Spurs. Somewhere in the more cosmopolitan corner of Cheshire, Fergie spat out his whisky watching match of the day. 2Guy often attracted lofty praise from onlookers, but he continually backed it up with demonstrations of his flawless technique. That strike against Spurs is one example. Pause a video clip right as the ball is dropping onto 2Guy's boot and you'll see a portrait of technique balance and unerring execution. One of the most difficult ways to strike a ball purely is when it's dropping from the heavens but such was Tugay's confidence in his own ability that he would attempt such a shot. That thunderbolt against Spurs is the kind of explosive action young strikers long to produce but very few achieve. Tugay seemed to do it time and time again. In eight years at Blackman Rovers, he fashioned a reputation as being one of the most astute midfield players when in possession of the ball. Beyond his penchant for spectacular goals, he also possessed the vision to play a raking 50-yard pass while also holding that metronomic capacity that allowed him to dictate the tempo of games. His skill set was such that Hughes had the following to say in 2006. People say to me, don't you wish he was 10 years younger? my answer is no, because if he was, he would be at Barcelona. Of course, Tugai's influence extended beyond his club career. He went on to make 94 appearances for his country and was an important senior member of the squad, when Senor Gunez led the nation to a third place in the 2002 World Cup in Japan and Korea. At only 31, only Taifu Havasu was older than Tugai, but the Blackburn Dynamo's stature amongst the rest of the Turkish squad was undeniable. It was he and Hakan Suker, the team's other elder statesmen, who the younger players looked up to, even when there were reports of a religious divide in the dressing room between the Muslim players and their more westernised, secular teammates. Religion was a deeply personal and individual matter. Tugay understood and appreciated that, which helped make him such a popular figure in the dressing room. He told The Telegraph in an interview in 2003, As a senior player, I try to set an example to the younger players and give them every chance of succeeding, playing well and being a unit in the team. I'm a Muslim. That's something which is in my heart and I don't need to express that to other people. In Japan and South Korea, Turkey were an emerging force during the World Cup of Shocks. For Tugay and his teammates, it was an exhilarating experience from Suka scoring after just 10.8 seconds against South Korea to Ilhan Manzik's golden goal that knocked out Senegal and booked Turkey a place in the semi-final against the eventual winners, Brazil, where only a piece of typical ingenuity and craft from Ronaldo was enough to separate the sides. When Tugay returned to Ewood Park, he was treated to a hero's welcome as no Blackburn Rovers player had ever achieved third place in a World Cup. Seven years had passed by the time Tugai finally hung up his boots and bid an emotional farewell to the Ewood Park crowd. The maestro is often mentioned in the same breath as Alan Shearer as the club's greatest player, to which he said with characteristic humility and grace, It's great to be honoured with this, but it's not only for me. It's for the club, the people who work at the club, the fans. We were all part of it. Everything was in the right place and that's why I'm thankful for my time here. Blackburn Rovers is in my heart and in my mind and it will never leave me. It's words like these, humble, thoughtful, conscientious, that made two guys such an immensely popular figure during his career. But it wasn't just Blackburn fans that loved to worship their stylish midfielder. Rather, his flair and craft and collar length hair made him a fashionable character liked by all, mostly because of his ability to score goals of scarcely believable skill and technique and pass the ball better than most in the Premier League. He will forever be immortalised in Goal of the Season videos and he'll forever be cherished as one of the Premier League's most estimable midfield technicians.
1: So it just remains for me to say thank you very much to our two narrators, that's Bill Arthur for the Tim Sherwood piece and Michael Taylor for the two-guy piece. Thanks to These Football Times magazine for allowing us to use two of their articles in our podcast, it's greatly appreciated. And our special guest, of course, voice artist supreme, Matthew Hall, whose latest piece, of course, can be accessed using Audible as a 30-day free trial for you to get the audiobook of Matt Janssen's autobiography, as narrated by Matthew. Thanks to you all, and last but by no means least, thanks also to the Symmetry Band for the music used in this episode. We'll be back soon, thank you for listening.
0: traditional no nansen
2: take four hi i'm matt hall and you might know me from such works as the audiobook of matt jansen's autobiography but this is the brfcs podcast